Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christiania Internet Radio. Today is Friday, March 28th, 2014. I'm about to begin a presentation on the Epistles of Paul. I'm going to first reiterate a lengthy explanation of some of the basic principles and methods which I have sincerely attempted to adhere to since I began my theological journey nearly 18 years ago. Even though this marks the midpoint of the New Testament commentary, which I hope to complete here on these Friday evenings, which I had begun in early 2011 with the Gospel of Matthew, a translation of Paul is where I actually began the work which had eventually become the Christianity New Testament about perhaps 15 years ago. I guess, I'm guessing. The translations found in the Christianity New Testament began as an endeavor to present the letters of Paul in a manner as true to the common usage of the Greek language as was possible for me, in concert with a full consideration of the entire biblical context and the history of the people of the book, and in English as plainly and clearly as my ability afforded. The translations are not expected to be perfect. The Greek manuscripts themselves are far from ideal, and for that reason alone, no New Testament translation can ever achieve perfection. They reflect my best effort based upon not only the resources that I had used, but also upon a full acceptance of the historicity of the Old Testament and the validity of the prophets selected extra-biblical writings and ancient history as recorded by the various branches of our race. I considered all those things when, when determining the meaning of many Greek words and phrases and, and, and how they should have been rendered in an English, into English. For history certainly does not conflict with the Bible once it's Peoples are properly identified, and its context is properly understood. Another severe limitation, of course, is my knowledge of the English language. Paul spoke and wrote in plain Greek and in simple language, which is evident from his own statements. For instance, in 1 Corinthians 1.17 and 14.9. The first chapter of 1 Corinthians, he says, For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. Therefore, we should, we should accept the words that Paul used according to their common Greek usage and not through any sophistic elaborations of men. 1 Corinthians 14.9. So likewise, you 
Except you utter by the tongue words easy to understand, how shall it be known what is spoken? For you shall speak into the air. However, Judaized Christians, among whom were indeed the King James translators, they had a tremendous Jewish influence, assigning meanings to words which were not understood in such ways among the original speakers of Koine Greek, indeed seek to make the cross of Christ of none effect, and therefore they do imagine Paul to have been speaking into the air. Therefore, care has been taken here not to apply any special meaning to any Greek word. There are no church definitions, I pray, in the Christian New Testament, but to render them all as they may have been understood by the common people Paul had written to. If any of the language of the Christian New Testament sounds like the King James Version, that is because... No English reader who ever read the King James Version, along with a plethora of 19th century writers and translators who were also affected by its language, and, and well, that's what I've read. No translator can therefore avoid being influenced by that language. While the King James Version is not an ideal Bible translation, it is nevertheless a marvelous work of early English, early modern English, I should say, which has a profound influence on our culture. The Christian New Testament translation, I like to call it organic. It was translated from my own reading of the Greek without any middleman, except for the usually critical inspection of the lexicons which I employed, primarily the little Liddell and Scott Greek English lexicon, while Thayer and Strong were also frequently consulted. Also often consulted was the usage of many of these same Greek words that appear in the New Testament in the Septuagint which is actually um, critical to understanding some of the more obscure words used by Paul and the other apostles. In order for a, for a translation to be completely understandable, renderings of many Greek words must be discussed in notes especially where there are important differences in comparison to other popular versions, like the King James Version. Therefore, giving these presentations, we attempt to explain, to present explanations which accomplish the following. First, to show the many differences among the various ancient manuscripts where those differences are significant in context and in translation. To explain, secondly, the reasons for many of the departures from the King James Version because of its popularity and where it is deemed to be warranted. And lastly, well, probably not lastly, but thirdly, to provide alternate translations of the text where the Greek may be interpreted in different ways when necessary and practicable. 
In addition to these things, of course, we attempt to make every comment possible in order that the truth of Christian Israel identity and the general beliefs which that label should represent are made manifest. There is no true Christianity without a true understanding of Christian identity, and that can only be acquired through a sound knowledge of ancient history. For the following, I have received much criticism. However, in many of my methods, I refuse to bow to critics because I believe that I have in some instances, greater reasoning than my critics. Identity Christians are the only true restoration and revisionist theologians. And we should therefore be complete in our methods. Therefore, unabashedly, when translating the New Testament, I have made every attempt to restore in a dignified manner the Hebrew appellation for our Father and Creator, Yahweh. Just as those translators of the past, who without any shame or remorse on their part when making the Septuagint, the Vulgate, and the King James Version, along with most subsequent translations, have followed the Jews by distorting that name and by sub substituting mere titles in its place. People tell me, but the apostles use those titles. And that is certainly apparent, there's no doubt. From the oldest Greek manuscripts which we have, and from the oldest manuscripts of the early Christian writers, Indeed, the historian Flavius Josephus, in the second book of his Antiquities of the Judeans, at line 276, in Wisdom's numbering system, this would be book 2, chapter 12, part 4, while discussing Moses and the incident at the burning bush, Josephus stated that, whereupon Gaul God, I'm sorry, <clears throat> I'm sorry, whereupon God declared to him his holy name, which had never been revealed to men before, at least in the Bible, concerning which it is not lawful for me to say any more. That's the words of Josephus. Concerning which it is not lawful for me to say any more, indicating that at one time men spoke it freely. Therefore, it is evident that the religious leaders of Judea had banned the use of the name of Yahweh before the time of Josephus. In turn, Christ told the apostles that the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. All, therefore, whatever they bid you observe, that you observe and do. But do not ye after their works, for they say and do not. Matthew chapter 23. So the reasons why the apostles did not use the name of Yahweh may be evident because the, the religious leaders of Judea had forbidden it. Now, I don't beat people over the head that don't use the name, but I feel that my understanding is certainly different and in accordance with the prophets. 
The scribes and the Pharisees, they no longer sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, I do not believe that I am bound to obey them, as the apostles once were. From Hosea chapter 2, from verse 16, And it shall be at that day, saith Yahweh, that thou shalt call me Ishi, which can be interpreted as my husband, and shalt no more call me Bali, which can be interpreted as my Lord. For I will take away the names of Balim out of her mouth, and they shall no more be remembered by their name. And in that day I will make a covenant for them, with the beasts of the field and the fowls of heaven, and with the creeping things of the ground, and I will break the bow and the sword and the battle out of the earth, and I will make them to lie down safely. And I will betroth them unto me forever, my husband, the nation of Israel, in its relationship to Yahweh. Yeah, I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness and in judgment and in loving kindness and in mercies. I will even betroth thee unto me in faithfulness, and thou shalt know Yahweh. And it shall come to pass in that day I will hear, saith Yahweh, I will hear the heavens, and they shall hear the earth. And the earth shall hear the corn and the wine and the oil, and they shall hear Jezreel. And I will sow her unto me in the earth, and I will have mercy upon her that had not obtained mercy, and I will say to them which were not my people, Thou art my people, and they shall say, Thou art my God. It is a theological statement to assert that this time of realization for the children of Israel is at hand, and that they should recognize that this God of the Old Testament is indeed their God. To identify him explicitly, rather than with the ambiguous terms that have replaced his holy name, is to acknowledge the historical facts of Scripture. That is what identity Christians should be willing to do. There are many critics who have expressed dislike for my methods. They should not make the error of assuming that I have done anything rashly or simply out of emotion. When I began translating the epistles of Paul, and, and let me say one more thing about the name Nothing pisses a Jew off more. Nothing incenses a Jew more than to hear a Christian claim that Yahweh is his God. Now, when I began translating the epistles of Paul, it was only meant to be a study conducted for my own private purposes, which I shared with a few friends. I never imagined that, it was, that I was going to translate all of Paul and then all of the New Testament, or that I would ever publish any part thereof.
The world was small to me then. I was in prison, and I was in contact with only a small number of identity Christians, a small number outside of prison. I had spent resources, but attempted to make the most of them. I think that helped me to focus on what was important. I actually began with a well-worn paperback in a linear New Testament and only obtained a copy of the Nestle Aland Novum Testamentum Preque, the 27th edition, in January of 2003. I quickly realized that my manuscript of Paul's epistles had to be updated in light of the texts provided by that far superior edition of the Greek and spent much of the rest of that year engaged in that endeavor. But initially, I only began translating Paul, and that's where I began, right here with Romans, because the phenomenon of Paul bashing had become known to me, and I knew that most of the arguments of the Paul bashers were indeed based on mistranslations and misunderstandings of Paul's epistles, but not on the words or the character of the real Paul of Tarsus. I did not really have it in mind to defend Paul from Paul bashers, but instead to defend my own relatively newfound love of the truth and Christian identity from Paul bashers. Most Paul, bash, most Paul bashers, I was convinced, were zealous and right-minded to condemn Judeo-Christianity. But they were rash and incompetent to accept the idea that the errors of Judeo-Christianity were actually supported by Paul. In truth, Paul refutes both universalism and Judaized Christianity in all of its denominations. This is why, when presenting the book of Acts here last year, When we encountered those chapters which introduced Paul of Tarsus, I had made the comment that we had begun what would ultimately be an 18-month endeavor to defend Paul. That was early last July. So the first six or seven months of that task are already completed. We have about a year left, and perhaps even longer. The Nestle A. Land Novum Testament Greke, the 27th edition, I'll refer to that as the NA27 from here on in. That edition includes the many variations among the many Greek manuscripts handed down through the centuries. And the many manuscripts in ancient papyri Nearly 100 of them are attested to in that edition, and their readings are included, which were discovered more recently by archaeology. Listing many hundreds of these sources and where they are stored today, various museums and university libraries and such, the volume also includes the Latin, Syriac, and other readings, 
of early manuscripts of those languages, and the readings of the so-called church fathers, where it determines that they matter and it excludes nothing of importance. It is a volume which undergoes great scrutiny, and yet I have never read a damaging criticism concerning it. When I studied in daily, when I studied it daily, preparing my translations, I found it difficult to conceive of a work that would eclipse the NA27 in either comprehension or integrity. It is the many archaeological findings of the 20th century which are primarily responsible for the large number of editions over less than 100 years since the first edition of the Nestle Aland text was published. Now, already, there is a 28th edition of the Nestle Aland text, which has recently become available. And I have been fortunate to obtain two copies of it. It is also freely available on the Internet. I would like to find the time to study and to update anything in my translations which its revelations may require. I pray that I have the opportunity to do that one day soon. I have already perused parts of it and noticed that it corrects a few errors which were the text of the notes of the NA27, one in particular which will compel me to change some of my own notes in Christrike regarding Revelation chapter 20, but the new information does not compel me to change the translation of the particular person question. That'll be forthcoming. It might take two years to get there, but we'll get there, Yahweh willing. As for the textual witness to the epistles of Paul, not many, not all, I'm sorry, not all of the many hundreds of ancient Greek manuscripts whose various readings have been attested to by the NA27 have been considered in the translations and notes of the Christogenian New Testament. Rather, only those first which are Greek, right? Only those which are dated to the 6th century and earlier have been considered. Except for those places where we have mentioned the readings of the majority text, all later papyri, uncles, and miniscules, in addition to the manuscripts of the other languages, had been ignored, except perhaps for a few brief mentions in a few of my notes. Also ignored, for the most part, are the recognized revisions or corrections which some of the older manuscripts had suffered over the centuries, which are also distinguished by the NA27. There are eight great uncial manuscripts these are manuscripts made on vellum, which are actually very thin sheets of animal skin, which are very durable for that reason, and written in all capital letters. That's what makes a manuscript a great uncial when it's written in all capital letters. Miniscules are started to appear from about the 9th century AD. They consist of mixed case, capital and small letters. 
There are eight great uncial manuscripts which contain nearly all of the Greek text of Paul's epistles and which are dated to the 4th through the 6th centuries A.D. The most complete of these are the 4th century Codex Sinaiticus, which attests to all 14 epistles of Paul, and the 4th century Codex Vaticanus, which is missing 1 and 2 Timothy, Titus, Philemon, and perhaps the last third of the epistle to the Hebrews. The 5th century Codex Alexandrinus, which is missing most of 2 Corinthians, and the 6th century Codex Claromontanus, which is a manuscript clearly re related to the Codex Pesae, which is wanting small portions of Romans and 1 Corinthians. So those manuscripts are quite complete and date to the 4th, 5th, and 6th centuries. There are four other great uncles, the Codices Ephraim Siri, Frerianus, and Vaticanus Grecus, which date to the 5th century, and the Codex Coislinianus, which dates to the 6th century, and they're all wanting more significant portions of Paul's epistles, but they are nonetheless important. Additionally, there are 27 other fragments of great uncial manuscripts extant, which attest to smaller portions of Paul's epistles. Most of these have as little as a verse or two. Some have more. The oldest is evidently from a 3rd century uncial known as the Wyman fragment. They're important because even though they, they, they don't tell us much as to the content of Paul's epistles, they do tell us a lot in the archaeological context in which they've been found. They do tell us a lot about the existence of Paul's epistles at an early time. Concerning the contents of the manuscripts included by the NA-27 as witnesses I'm sorry. In addition to the great uncles, the NA-27 documents 20 significant ancient papyri fragments, which have been found by archaeologists, which attest to portions of Paul's epistles and which date from as early as 200 AD up through the 6th century. All but one of these contains all or part of at least several verses. One of them only contains a very small portion of Romans 1. At least one verse in Romans 1. At least 14 of the 20 are considered to be older than 400 AD. The two oldest are both dated to about 200 AD. The papyri known as P32 has all or part of 11 verses in the epistle to Titus. The papyri known as P46, which is one of the papyri considered to be the Chester Beatty papyri, that attests to very significant portions of nine of Paul's epistles. Concerning the contents of the manuscripts included by the NA-27 as witnesses to the text, the editor's introduction says that it should be understood that in the description of the papyri and other fragments, 
A verse is counted as being present if even a single letter of it has been preserved. Now, now, that's why a lot of times manuscripts are listed as having verses, but when we look at the text of the MA-27 and the differences in the manuscripts, those manuscripts, those same manuscripts aren't listed at all. So we have to pay close attention to the content. When considering the many spurious interpolations, this is a good practice testifying not to the content of a verse, but to its existence in the earliest witnesses. Yet for this reason, many times a manuscript is not discussed in the notes, even though it may be counted as having a particular verse, because the verse is illegible or incomplete, so its reading cannot be determined for such consideration. For the purpose of my notes, whenever a particular reading in any ancient manuscript is marked by the NA27 editors as being probable, it is considered valid. Unlike Paul's other letters, no ancient papyri had been discovered up until the publication of the NA27, which bears witness to 1st or 2nd Timothy. The same holds true for a longer list of ancient papyri included in the NA28, which I, uh, I checked for this presentation tonight. So here the Onkyos, the great Onkyo manuscripts, must be relied upon, and although there are several which date to the 4th and 5th centuries, that is rather late considering the age of some of the papyri which we have. Yet comparing all of the differences among the papyri with the earliest of the great Onkyos, those Onkyos as a group, I'm speaking on general terms because there are certain problems, of course, with each one of them, certain variations or certain verses, especially in a Codex Alexandrinus that suddenly appear in the 6th century. There's a lot of those. Yet comparing all of the differences among the papyri with the earliest onkyos, those onkyos as a group have proven themselves to be remarkably reliable witnesses in most respects. Surely the general content of these epistles should be considered to be trustworthy. Yet, you know, there's something that people really don't think about. When these scribes were copying these manuscripts down through the centuries, they had no idea that men would come along a thousand years, 1,500 years later, and dig papyri fragments out of the ground. Those same papyri fragments, which may have been used in some of those instances to copy those great onkyo manuscripts. They had no idea that would, that would happen. So the finding, the discovery of hundreds of papyri fragments which contain parts of, of these New, New Testament great onkyos is an amazing verification for the veracity of our faith.
all of the manuscripts employed in the translation of the Christogenian New Testament are classified by the NA27 editors as consistently cited witnesses of the first order. Later, and lesser witnesses had been for the most part ignored in the making of the Christogenian translations, except the majority text. In the NA27, that term represents the majority text including the Byzantine coin text. And it, it is said that it indicates readings supported by the majority of all manuscripts, always including manuscripts of the coin type in the narrow sense. The majority text therefore represents the witness of the coin text type as, and, and that's the Byzantine text type as opposed to other text types, together and, and written in minuscule, together with the witness of all consistently cited manuscripts of the second order which agree with it in a given reading. The majority text has the status of a consistently cited witness of the first order, simply because it's based on thousands of manuscripts. So the majority text and what the majority text is is really fluid. There's a lot of people that confuse the majority text with the so-called textus receptus. That term, textus receptus, is a trick. The Elzevir family were printers in Holland. Other manuscripts of the Greek New Testament had already been compiled and collated by Stephanus, by um, Erasmus. Well, the Elzevers created their own text of the, of, of the um, Greek manuscripts and published it, and they called it the Textus Receptus in the frontispiece, in the advertisement to their book. They created the label Textus Receptus. It's a printer's advertisement to get people to buy their book. Textus Receptus is a, a Canaanite merchant hoax. That's what it is in my opinion. It's not the received text. And, and the King James Version was not based upon the so-called Textus Receptus. The King James Version was based upon something close to the majority text, not exactly, but close. The, um, the Textus Receptus is basically a printer's boast, which came out, I think, if memory serves me correctly, just a decade or two after the first King James Version was published. Most of the manuscripts, which represent collectively what which the term majority text represents, most of these manuscripts date to a relatively recent time, since the style of writing, which they all contain, known as minuscule, did not become extant until after the 9th century AD. The manuscripts of the majority text do not always agree with each other and very often they diverge. And on these occasions, they were virtually 
always ignored in the notes to my translation since taken individually, the importance of each manuscript is greatly diminished because they do not have the antiquity of the uncles and the papyri which are employed in the Christianity New Testament notes and which were considered as viable manuscripts for, for the translation. The English of the King James Version usually but not always agrees with the majority text. I cited in, in my presentations over the past three years of Acts and Matthew and Mark and Luke, I cited quite a few differences. What were the, maybe I could count them on one hand, but there are a significant number of times where the English of the King James and the majority text do not agree. It may be evident to some of my more studious listeners, and, and I'm not discrediting anybody if they haven't noticed this, that's fine. It's not something I would expect many people to notice. That I have always used the term Alexandrian tradition to describe the codices, Alexandrinus, Ephraim Siri, and the other codices which which are found to be similar to those. Yet certain academic sources, and even many of those on the Internet, such as Wikipedia, they use the term Byzantine text type to refer to those same codices. Then they use the term Alexandrian tradition or Alexandrian text type to refer to codices such as the codices Vaticanus and Sinaiticus and others which are similar to them. This is a quandary which has caused much confusion, which I can't help. The terminology which I am accustomed to using is from the classification of the New Testament manuscript text types first conceived and popularized by Westcott and Hort. That is because their classification is much older than the, the classification employed by textual critics today. And the resources by which I became familiar to coin Greek and New Testament manuscripts followed the older Westcott and Hort classification. So when I say Alexandrian tradition, I mean the Codex Alexandrinus, and the Codex Ephraim Siri primarily. When Wikipedia says Alexandrian text type, they mean the Codices Vaticanus and Sinaiticus, which I see, which that's a classification that I don't even agree with, and I've read them both. They just pick out a few words that are different and, and um, create their own, create a newfangled way of, of um, or, or a few words that are similar, and create a newfangled way of assessing text types. To me, it doesn't really, this text type classification doesn't even really matter. It, it's hinged upon certain similarities and differences in certain verses, and I don't necessarily 
agree at all that it's accurate. And that's why probably the, this modern evaluation of text types is so different from Westcott and Horde. I became familiar to Koine Greek and New Testament manuscripts that followed the Westcott and Hort text, text classifications. I would invite readers to see the small Greek grammar handbook entitled Greek and Caridian by William G. MacDonald on page 30 for verification of the Westcott and Hort classification of the major Greek uncial manuscripts and thus for verification of my reasons for the terminology that I use. Some have claimed for the reason that I am accustomed to using the older Westcott and Hort to referring to the older Westcott and Hort textual groupings, that for that reason I followed the Westcott and Hort manuscripts preparing my New Testament translation. That claim is utterly ridiculous. In fact, the readings of the so-called higher critics and the manuscripts of Westcott and Hort, Tischendorf, Tregelis, Alfred, Lachman, Griesbach, yeah, I know their names, and any of the other medieval editors or so-called higher critics were never considered for the text of the Christogenian New Testament, period. There is one more note I would like to make here, and that is concerning my renderings of proper names. Although this may not appeal to many, I have tried when transliterating, transliterating names to stay as close as possible to their original Greek spellings with some exceptions. Examples of those exceptions are that Paul here is Paul and not Paulus. Jerusalem is Jerusalem and not Jerusalem, as the Greeks had it. Popular Old Testament figures whose names may be unrecognizable in their Greek forms therefore appear here as their names were spelled in the Old Testament of the King James Version. For example, Moses, Noah. Noah would be N-O-E in Greek. Isaiah, who would be Esaias. Elijah, Elias. Hagar, Agar. Some contemporary terms were also spelled in the popular manner, Caesar, Pharisee, Judea. Otherwise, my transliterations of names attempt to remain faithful to the Greek. I have, I have a personal beef about that. When I was young, well, my name is William, and I learned that the Spanish version of my name was Guillermo. Well, I hate that. I detest that. If I ever went to Spain and somebody tried to call me Guillermo, there might be a fight. I'm William. I'm English. I'm not a Spaniard. If I went to France and somebody tried to call me Guillaume, there might be a fight. My name is William. I don't want my name changed just because your language is different. No, that's not happening. So, so maybe that's a personal thing with me. But, but I try to be to, to, to represent names the way the, um, they, they appeared in the Greek and to adhere to that. Although it appears first 
I'm sorry. I'm getting ahead of myself once again. Most of the sentiments expressed here to this point were first written in 2004 or 2005 when I completed and had a copyright manuscript entitled The Letters of Paul, which for a variety of reasons was never published. Of course, these sentiments are just as valid today or I would not have offered them here. They represent only a portion of the methods and reasoning behind my work. However, I hope that they shed some light on making it somewhat more understandable and, and on showing people in general that I didn't rush into anything rashly, that even though some of the things I do are different, they are thought out. It may not always be sound reasoning. Maybe some people would differ with that, but they are thought out. I didn't just pull things out of thin air or make them up and fabricate them. No, that didn't happen. For further discussion on those methods, the methods I use in Bible interpretation, I would refer those interested to a paper I wrote in 2009 entitled On Biblical Exegesis. It's available at Christiania Today. With this, we shall now turn our attention to the epistles of Paul of Tarsus, beginning with his epistle to the Romans. Although it appears first in the popular ordering of Paul's epistles, which are, which are found in most New Testament editions, Romans was certainly not the first epistle which Paul had written. For that distinction, among those epistles which we have, we must point to 1 Thessalonians. Rather, Romans was the eighth of Paul's 14 surviving epistles. And we gave an exposition which detailed when each of them were written at the close of our 34-part presentation on the book of Acts. Romans was the last epistle which Paul wrote as a free man. And of his 14 epistles, the six which remain were written while he was in bonds. The epistle to the Romans was written from the Troad, circa 57 AD, during Paul's stay there, which is described at the beginning of Acts chapter 20. This is evident from both the lists of men who were with Paul, provided in Acts 20, and from Romans 16, and also from Paul's comments concerning his ministry and his plans to visit Rome, which were discussed in Romans chapter 15, where he says, from verse 22, on which account I also had often been hindered in coming to you, but now, no longer having a place in these regions, and having a longing to come to you for many years, perhaps as I journey into Spain, and we would contend that he never made it there, 
Therefore, I expect to be passing across to see you and by you to be escorted there. If, however, of you first I am somewhat satisfied. But now I travel to Jerusalem in service to the saints. They of Macedonia and Achaia have been glad to make a certain contribution for the needy of the saints who are in Jerusalem. Indeed, they were well pleased, and their debtors they are. For if the nations share with them in the things of the Spirit, then they are obliged to minister to them in the things of the flesh. Now this being accomplished, and this profit having been assured to them, I will depart by you, or perhaps through you, towards Spain. Furthermore, in that same place in Romans 15, Paul explains that he is on his way to Judea once again at verse 30 where it says, Moreover, I entreat you, brethren, through our Prince Yahshua Christ and through the love of the Spirit to assist me in prayers to Yahweh on my behalf in order that I am delivered from those of disobedience in Judea and that my service is to Jerusalem, and that my servant's service that is to Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. That with joy I am coming to you through the will of Yahweh, that I may have rest with you. Paul later says, in the account of his defense, before the Judeans, in the book of Acts, in chapter 24, that now, from verse 17, that now after many years I came to bring alms to my nation and offerings. It is clear that the alms and offerings of Acts 24:17 are the same as the service to the saints which Paul was about to deliver to Jerusalem, which he mentioned in Romans 15:31. This clearly establishes that Paul was about to bring to Jerusalem that collection for the saints of Judea, described in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, an epistle which was written about a year earlier than the epistle to the Romans was written, just before he arrived in Corinth for the last time. And therefore, Romans was written as Paul was about to go to Judea in 57 A.D., no doubt. Corroborating this is Acts chapter 20, verse 4, where we see that the men who are listed by Luke as being with Paul, as he arrives in the Troad, are Sopater of Beria, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derbe, and Timotheus, and of Asia, Tychicus and Trophimus. Then, in Acts chapter 20, verses 5 and 6, we read, These going before, so they were with Paul already, carried for us, meaning Luke and his company, at Troas, the Troad, Troy, and we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and came to them to Troas, five days, where we abode seven days.
without a doubt, it's during that seven-day period that the epistle to the Romans was written. Luke had not been mentioned as being with Paul since they parted ways in Acts chapter 16 after Paul's release from prison in Philippi. Paul leaves Philippi, he goes with Silas, and he leaves Luke behind. Luke doesn't record seeing Paul again until here in Acts chapter 20, verses 5 and 6. Comparing this list in Acts chapter 20, where the we in verse 6 includes Luke himself, to that list in Romans chapter 16, where Paul lists the greetings of the men who were with him, we see Luke, Timothy, Sosipater, spelled there, Sosipater, spelled in Luke, Sopater, and we see Gaius, and we see other unnamed men whom Paul must have intended to describe by the words, the whole assembly. And they're all listed in Romans 16, verses 21 and 23. Paul's ministry among the Greeks being completed, where he professes in Romans 15 that he no longer had a place in those regions. This stay in the Troad, just before his journey to Jerusalem is the only possible opportunity for the writing of the epistle to the Romans, where Luke and Timothy were both with him as well as the others. It is also evident from the epistle to the Romans that Paul had not yet been to Rome before he wrote it, but that he hoped to visit it soon. My throat is dry tonight. This air is so dry. Although it was not written first, perhaps it is fitting that the epistle to the Romans had the first place among Paul's epistles. Since it is such a full, by no means complete, but such a full exposition of the apostles' teachings. The epistle which we know as 1 Corinthians comes close and discusses many of the same themes. However, we also esteem that it is appropriately given the second place, even though it was written long before Romans was written. Perhaps this is providential. As we get into the actual text of Romans, we shall indeed see things which the King James translators and those who created the popular order of Paul's epistles could by no means have understood. The Roman people were, for the most part, descendants of the Trojans who had settled in Italy after the fall of Troy. A fantastic account of the story is told in the famous poem by Virgil entitled The Aheneid. Many may dismiss this as legend. However, it is indeed historical. It is an account which has been transmitted consistently from the time of the writings of the earliest Greek and Roman poets and historians, beginning with the epic poets of the 7th century BC. And it is never contested. In turn, 
There is the truth of the origins of the original Trojans, which is not so obvious in our histories. It can be established in scripture and mythology that the Trojans themselves were of the stock of the Israelites who left Egypt. However, the fact that certain Israelites departed from Egypt apart from Moses and leaving by sea had established cities in what was later Greece and Anatolia is corroborated in the Greek classics. It's corroborated by Diodor Siclus. These things are discussed at length in an essay available at Christiani.org entitled Classical Records of Trojan Roman Judah. On the other hand, it can be established that the Corinthians, who were Dorian Greeks, originated from later migrations of Israelites into what is now Greece. This is discussed in another essay available at Christogenia.org, Classical Records of the Dorian and Danon Israelite Greeks. That's why I say that perhaps the ordering of the epistles in the King James Version, perhaps that is providential. All of these assertions which I've made concerning the origins of the Romans and the Dorian Greeks, all of these assertions are confirmed by the epistles of Paul. And we shall, of course, make the appropriate observations as we examine the text to those epistles, Yahweh willing, over the coming months. There is little doubt to us that Paul of Tarsus was the first teacher of what we today refer to as Christian Israel identity. And only because that is the only true and legitimate Christianity, in spite of the fact that it has been misunderstood for 2,000 years. It's a matter of Old Testament prophecy that the children of Israel would be blind. It's a matter of Old Testament prophecy that these truths would be revealed in the last days. With this, finally, some may think, I hope I didn't bore anybody with all that. With this, we shall commence with the text to Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, bondman of Yahshua Christ, a called ambassador, set apart for the good message of Yahweh. That word bondman, that's the word doulas. Strong's number 1401. Properly, it's an involuntary servant or a slave. And originally referred to a born slave, as opposed to someone who was made a slave, for which there was another Greek word. As Paul attested in Galatians 1.15, he believed that the purpose of his life was determined before he was born. Being a bondman of Christ, however, was not a reference to being a prisoner for Christ, which happened after the epistle to the Romans was written. We should not read bondmen and, and, and envision that Paul is 
calling himself a bondman because he's arrested. He called himself a prisoner, a desmos, Strong's number 1198, in his epistles to the Hebrews, Ephesians, Philemon, and in his second epistle to Timothy. Four of the six epistles he wrote while he was a prisoner, he explicitly called himself a desmos, or a prisoner. They were all written after his arrest in Jerusalem. He was a bondman because he was born a servant of Yahweh, which is what he believed. Galatians 1.15. It should be what we believe, too. Verse 2, which he previously announced through his prophets in the sacred writings. And by the term sacred writings, even though Paul does, in, in many of his epistles and in the records of the book of Acts, Paul actually quotes profane writings, meaning writings of the so-called secular Greek poets and historians. By using the term sacred writings, Paul intends to convey the concept, the concept of scripture as canon, as opposed to writings which are not sacred. That doesn't mean writings which are not sacred are useless. It means that the sacred writings are indeed from God. The word rendered sacred is hagios, which describes something set apart for the purposes of God. And the Bible certainly is. Verse 3. Concerning his son who came forth from the offspring of David down through the flesh. That Greek word, genuminus a form of the verb genomahi, may have been rendered having been born of. The King James Version has which is made or which was made. That's fine. Often in the Christogenia New Testament, there is the phrase down through, who came forth from the offspring of David down through the flesh. That's important. It's important. It should be important to us. <laughs> That phrase, down through, comes from the preposition kata, Strong's number 2596. The King James Version often renders it as according to, and has according to the flesh here. The word kata is a preposition which literally means down. Today, the Judaized Christians, taking certain scriptures out of context, often express disdain for things which are according to the flesh, as if the promises of God to Abraham's seed, and Abraham's seed are indeed his physical offspring, have somehow been nullified, and the flesh doesn't matter anymore. If the flesh didn't matter, Paul wouldn't have made the reference that Christ was born according to the offspring of David, according to the flesh, or down through the offspring of David. Down through the flesh. If flesh didn't matter, why would Paul mention that? Therefore, our rendering, where we say down through, rather than according to, our rendering is an attempt to emphasize the literal meaning of the phrase. 
to better express the intent of the original Greek in order to show that the power of God is manifest in the fulfillment of his promises and not in spite of them. The Judaized Christians and their doctrines actually believe that God works in spite of his promises. As for verse 3, the King James Version has the words, Jesus Christ in that verse, which are found in none of the ancient manuscripts, not even in the majority text. That's one more place where they do not agree. Verse 4, who has been distinguished as the son of Yahweh by ability in accordance with the spirit of sanctity by a raising of the dead, Yahshua Christ, our prince. The critics of Paul of Tarsus love to accuse him for his words here. Since Christ was clearly born the Son of God, according to those same prophets to whom Paul refers, they love to accuse him because the King James Version translates this verse to read, and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, as if Paul was claiming that Christ was only the Son of God because he was resurrected. But that's not at all what Paul was claiming. One Paul Basher, the fellow named um, H. Graver, Jaime Huckster Graver, I don't know his first name. If you remember the, the Against the Paul Basher series I did here last year with Sword Brethren. One Paul Basher said, Here Paul tells us that Jesus was not the Son of God until he qualified himself by the Spirit of Holiness and after his resurrection. Matthew tells us that Jesus was born the Son of God by the Virgin Mary. Who do you believe, Paul or Matthew? So these little idiosyncrasies in the New Testament are, are, are emphasized by the people who want to divide us in order to destroy, ultimately in order to destroy Christianity. This is a classic example of the fact that Paul of Tarsus or any of the original writers of Scripture cannot be blamed for the errors of the later translators. Admittedly, Romans 1.4 is a difficult verse to translate. The passage may have been rendered to say, in part, who has been distinguished or who has been determined to be a son of Yahweh by the ability through a spirit of sanctity of a raising of the dead. However, the Greek verb, horizo, Strong's number 3724, may by no means properly be translated as declare, as the King James Version has done here. The word basically and most literally means to divide or separate from as a boundary. And among other uses, it may mean to determine or to define, according to Ludell and Scott, so it may mean to declare also in certain contexts. But Paul is indicating that the resurrection of Christ made the assertion that Christ is a son of Yahweh an indisputable fact. Or in other words, he was a son of God and his resurrection distinguishes that assertion as a fact. Therefore, the resurrection of Christ 
did not make Christ the Son of God. That is not what Paul's saying, although one can be misled to believe that by the King James translation of this passage. Rather, Christ was indeed born a Son of God, and, the resurre- and Luke himself records that right down from Adam, who was the Son of God. And the resurrection was the foremost event which Paul uses to present the sonship of Christ from God as a fact to the Romans. It also must be noted that Paul did not use the definite article, the, which the King James Version and other versions have in the text of this passage. It's not in any of the original manuscripts. It's a son of God, not the son of God. Another false doctrine created by the churches. All of the children of Israel are called sons of God or daughters of God, children of God. Isaiah chapter 14. I'm sorry, Deuteronomy chapter 14. It's also mentioned in Isaiah, maybe not in chapter 14. It's in Deuteronomy 14. It's in Isaiah. It's in the Psalms. It's in Luke chapter 3. Adam was the son of God. Luke 3.38. Verse 5. Through whom we receive favor and a message for compliance of faith by all of the nations in behalf of his name. The reading of Apostale here, Strong's number 651, which is apostleship in the King James Version. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But it's a message here. In the profane writers, the word is literally ascending off or ascending away or dispatching. And apostolos, apostle, is literally a messenger or an ambassador or an envoy. I try to stay away from the churchy terms when I can. Sometimes it's difficult. This interpretation of apostale as a message here is supported by the rendering of this word in Brenton Septuagint in Psalm 7749, where he does the same thing. So I'm not making it up. We also see this word translated as a message in the Christogenian New Testament in 1 Corinthians 9.2 and in Galatians 2.8. A belief in Christ requires a turn to obedience in Christ by Christians. That's what Paul is saying here. The, the, the favor, the grace, and the message for compliance or obedience by all of the nations. That's what Christians have received. That's what the children of Israel in apostasy for God had received. From Matthew 4.17, from that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You want to enter the kingdom of heaven, repentance requires a turn to the law of God, a departure from sin. Verse 6, among whom also are you called of Yahshua Christ? That's not a verb. 
That's an adjective. It's a difference. To all those in Rome who are beloved of Yahweh, called saints, that word called, that's not a verb, as the King James translated translated it and stuck another verb in there called to be saints. That's not a verb. It's an adjective. There's a difference. Favor to you, or grace, as the King James usually has. Favor to you and peace from Yahweh our Father and Prince Yahshua Christ. The word for called in verse 7 and in verse 6 is not a verb as the King James Version certainly suggests. Rather, it is an adjective. An adjective modifying a noun describes an existing condition. When we say the red ball, that doesn't mean the ball can be red. That means the ball is red. Wow, what a difference in language called to be saints, the King James has. Like these people have a chance, perhaps, to be Christians. That's not what Paul is saying. They are called saints. They're already saints, whether they're Christians or not. In hindsight, the, the, the adjectives chosen or elect may have been better alternatives than called. I, I opted for an absolutely literal translation. Chosen or elect may be, may be more explicit or, or at least better understood. Here the word agrees in case with the noun, and therefore it modifies the noun, which is translated saints, called saints. The construction in verse 1, where Paul is a called ambassador, is similar. That's not a noun. It's an adjective. It's stating a pre-existing condition. Paul was called as an, as an apostle back in Acts chapter 9, perhaps 20 years before he wrote this epistle. From Isaiah chapter 54, where Yahweh is addressing the children of Israel. For thy maker is thine husband. Yahweh of hosts is his name. And thy redeemer, the holy one of Israel, the God of the whole earth, shall he be called. For Yahweh has called thee, called thee, as a woman forsaken, the marriage relationship between Yahweh and Israel, and grieved in spirit, and a wife of youth, when thou wast refused, saith thy God. For a small moment I have forsaken thee, which intones that a future time is coming when she will be accepted back again. But with great mercies will I gather thee, and nobody else. In a little wrath I hid my face from thee for a moment, but with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on thee, saith Yahweh thy Redeemer. This is Isaiah 54. This is part of that same messianic prophecy of Isaiah 53, and which begins a couple of chapters before that. From the blessing of Moses, Deuteronomy chapter 33. And he said, Yahweh comes from Sinai, and rose up from Seir unto them, 
he shined forth from Mount Paran, and he came with ten thousands of saints. From his right hand went a fiery law for them. Yeah, he loved the people. All his saints are in thy hand, and they sat down at thy feet. Everyone shall receive of thy words. They were saints. They were the children of Israel, and they were saints 1,600 years before they were Christians. From the prayer of Hannah, from 1 Samuel chapter 2, he will keep the feet of his saints, and the wicked shall be silent in darkness, for by strength shall no man prevail. You can't force your way into the kingdom of heaven, and you're not going to do anything to take any of the saints away from Yahweh God, as Christ professes in John 17. The prophets define the saints of God as the children of Israel, and the prophets define the called of God as the children of Israel. Paul, reiterating these things from the holy writings, is certainly not attempting to redefine them. To the contrary, Paul said in Hebrews chapter 13, Remember your leaders, those who speak to you the word of Yahweh, by which he must mean the Old Testament, of whom, closely observing the discharge of their conduct, you imitate that faith. Yahshua Christ, the same yesterday, today, and for the ages. Because thy maker is thine husband, Yahweh of hosts, according to Isaiah, and because Paul espoused the assemblies of God to Christ, as he professed in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, the phrases, Yahweh our Father and Prince Yahshua Christ, must be an example of a Hebrew parallelism, where the same entity is described consecutively in different ways which is originally a feature of the Hebrew language that is found throughout both Old Testaments and New. Verse 8. Firstly, indeed, I thank my God through Yahshua Christ for the sake of you all that your faith is proclaimed in the whole cosmos. The word cosmos was only transliterated here. While we have often translated the word as society, and of course we stand by that. And while we will fully explain our reasons for that at an opportune time, as we already have in a paper at Christogenia entitled, What is the World? We believe that there are certain contexts where the intended reference seems to transcend the mere idea of society. And when we encountered those occasions, we have either left the word as it is transliterated here, or we have rendered it as order, which is the primary meaning of the word. Cosmos is order. Cosmos is the order of the oikumene, which is the physical dwelling place of man. That's how the Greeks saw it. The Codex Sinaiticus wants the words through Yahshua Christ in verse 8. However, the same expression is repeated in Romans 7.25, where except for some slight differences, they appear in all of the manuscripts. 
Paul, offering thanks to Yahweh God through Christ, is exhibiting his assertion that Yahshua Christ fulfills his role as our mediator to Yahweh our God. As Paul described Christ in his epistle to the Hebrews, he also professed to Timothy in like manner that there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, from the King James, 1 Timothy 2.5. Many may wonder how this could be, since Yahshua Christ is indeed Yahweh in the flesh, the incarnation of God on earth. Yet where Paul says that in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, where Godhead means divinity, we must understand that all of the majesty, which is Yahweh God, is much greater than the body of a mere man. And therefore, the being, which is God, cannot be contained solely in the body of a man. Yet Yahweh God has chosen to represent himself to man as a man, which is Yahshua Christ. Therefore, Yahshua Christ is God. God is not necessarily Yahshua Christ. He cannot be limited to the body of a man, being the essence of God. Yahshua Christ is God, and Yahshua Christ is mediator between God and man. This is a metaphysical puzzle, which has forever been difficult for men to grasp, since men can only define God in human terms. Those who do not understand insist that Christ is a distinct person from Yahweh the Father. But those who do know can comprehend him properly as just one aspect of Yahweh the Father. He is God. He is Christ. He is the Holy Spirit. John chapter 14, beyond doubt, proves that Yahshua Christ is the Holy Spirit. He's not lying. He is God. He says that the Father will send you another comforter, and then two verses later he says... I will come to you. I will not leave you fatherless. I will come to you. He's professing that he is that other comforter. The Holy Spirit is him. He's Yahweh the Father. He's Christ the Son. He's the Holy Spirit. He's the pillar of smoke. He's the pillar of fire. He's the burning in the bush. It's not a trinity. Israel has one God. Paul makes several professions. Yahshua Christ makes several professions. Yahweh insists on it all throughout the Old Testament. Hear ye, O Israel, Yahweh our God is one God. Thomas the Apostle looked at Christ and said, My Lord and my God. He understood it, that Yahshua Christ was a facet, one aspect, one incarnation of the majesty which is our creator. Those who dispute that Christ is God are in a quandary because they either deny the divinity of Christ, 
which the New Testament clearly upholds, and which Isaiah upholds, and some of the other prophets, they either deny the divinity of Christ, or they insist that Israel has more than one God. There's no getting around that. These clowns that refute oneness. They're actually antichrists refuting Christ. That's what they are. Verse 9. For my witness is Yahweh, whom I serve in my spirit with the good message of his Son. If you haven't noticed, I usually translate the word which gives us gospel as good message. That is an attempt to demystify it because the gospel is a good message to the children of Israel. It's also an, ex an absolute literal translation. How incessantly I do make mention of you at all times making supplication at my prayers. If possible now, at last, I will be successful by the will of Yahweh to come to you. Paul's words here inform us once again that he had not yet been to Rome, which is also evident in all of the accounts of his travels which are provided in the book of Acts. For I desire to see you, that I impart a spiritual gift to you, for you to be made steadfast. That is, being summoned together with you through trust in one another, both yours and mine the Christian assemblies, as we see them mentioned variously in Paul's lengthy salutation of Romans chapter 16. In other words, he's not writing to just one church at Rome. He's writing to several Christian assemblies at Rome. And he mentions them. Those Christian assemblies must have been established for some time already before this epistle was written. We have established the year 57 A.D., without a doubt, as the time of the writing of this epistle. In Acts chapter 18, we see that from verse 1. After these things, referring to Paul's discourse at the Hill of Heirs in Athens in Acts 17, after these things, departing from Athens, he went into Corinth, and finding a certain Judean named Achilles, or Achila, of Pontus by birth, recently having come from Italy, and Priscilla his wife, on account of Claudius ordering all of the Judeans to depart from Rome, he went with them. In our presentation of the book of Acts, we saw that that event occurred before 51 A.D., and we know that from the discovery in archaeology of what is called the, the Gallio inscription. And that according to the Roman historian Suetonius, we can ascertain that the reason for the expulsion was agitation among the Judeans in Rome due to divisions caused by the gospel of Christ. Without a doubt, the gospel had come to Rome at least seven years before Paul wrote this epistle, and probably even sooner than that. Nowhere, however, can we determine who it was that first preached 
Christianity among the Romans. But it was certainly neither Peter nor Paul. Peter, by all attestation, spends most of his time in Acts at Antioch. And later, when he wrote his epistles, he was in Babylon. Now, I know you'll see some commentaries claiming that Peter meant Babylon in his epistles as a code word for Rome. And then we get to Revelation chapter 13 and say, oh, look, or chapter 18 and say, oh, look, Babylon is Rome. And a lot of those same commentators will say, oh, no, no, it's not. It's something else. Yeah, right. Okay. As for the phrase, being summoned together with you, the verb is sumparakleifenahi. It's literally to be called together, to invite together, or at the same time, in the active sense, according to Liddell and Scott. Thayer's lexicon supports the King James Version translation that I may be comforted together. Now, it could mean to be comforted together, but it can't mean that I may be comforted together because that would require a first-person form of the verb. Another word, sumpara muteomahi, would precisely mean to be comforted together. And Paul used that word in the sense of being comforted together with a form of this word. He used parakaleo and parabutheomahi together in 1 Thessalonians 2.11, and there the King James Version has exhorted and comforted. I don't think that he's saying comforted here. It could be. I believe he's saying summoned or invited together with you. And there's a reason I believe that. Paul is telling the Romans in verse 11 that he had something by which to edify them. <coughs> Then Paul is telling the Romans in verse 12 that they are summoned together. They are being called together in Christ. He is assuring them that their calling is his calling too. He, as well as they, are called together, and therefore, for that reason, they should trust one another, being summoned together with you through trust in one another, both yours and mine, he wants to share with them a spiritual gift. Here, we must demystify that magic word faith, a word that has been used to uphold so many false ideas by those who would seek to Judaize Christianity or support other common misconceptions concerning Christ. This is because most people are conditioned so that certain words trigger emotional responses that diminish the ability to perceive something rationally. The Greek word pistis is literally trust, faith, or belief. It appears approximately 170 times in the letters of Paul. In the Christogenia New Testament, it is usually faith, but in certain contexts, it is trust or belief or assurance or even trustworthiness. Even in the King James Version, although it is 
usually faith, it is not always. They also translated it as belief in 2 Thessalonians 2.13, or as assurance in Acts 17.31, or as fidelity in Titus 2.10. The verb, pistuo, is usually to believe in the Christianity New Testament, as well as the King James Version. The verb pistuo means to trust, to trust to or in, to put faith in, to rely on, or to believe in. The adjective, pistus, the ver- the, I'm sorry, the noun is actually pistis, if we wanted to try to pronounce it better. Pistis is the adjective, and that is <clears throat> to be trusted or believed of persons, to be faithful, trusty, true. From these definitions, it should be apparent that these common Greek words have no special religious signification. It's not a magic word, faith. These are the usual words which were used to express the ideas of faith, trust, or belief, and only the context in which they are used should determine what is the substance that that faith, trust, or belief represents. Here in Romans 1.12, the King James translators imagine Paul to be referring to the faith. Let's spell that with a capital T and a capital F, right? The faith should be perceived as that set of beliefs which Christians should have concerning Christ, redemption, salvation, and whatever other things are necessarily related. However, Looking at the historical context of Paul's epistle, Paul, being a Judean, and many Judeans having already caused much trouble for the Christians of Rome, as we have seen examining Acts chapter 18 and the Edict of Claudius, and as we may see when considering the words of the historian Tacitus and the persecution of Christians which continued in the reign of Nero, it is evident that Paul was assuring the Roman Christians that he could be trusted by them since he was called in the same Christian calling in which they themselves were called. Therefore, the subsequent verses of Paul's epistle seek to assure them of that same thing. The King James translators, wherever they say Christos, wherever they saw Christos, refers to Christ. Wherever they saw the word faith, it refers to faith in Christ. Well, well, no, that's not true. There's other forms of faith, belief, trust in one another. This is what Paul's expressing to these Romans, that they should have trust in one another, because they were summoned together in the same calling. That's the reason for the Christianity and New Testament translation of this verse. That's the length. There's a whole page of notes here. That's the length that one has to go to sometimes to show that, that there is logic behind one small verse of translation. 
Verse 13. For I do not wish that you be ignorant, brethren, that I often proposed to come to you and was hindered until now, in order that I would then have some fruit among you, just as in the other nations. The Codex Claromontanus opens verse 5 with the words, I do not imagine you to be ignorant. However, the phrase, as it appears in the text, appears elsewhere, for I do not wish that you be ignorant being seen again in Romans and in several other of his epistles. It's one of those trademark sayings of Paul of Tarsus. Again, Paul affirms that he had not yet preached the gospel in Rome, although he had long desired to do so. Paul wants fruit among the Romans as he is running the race, which he describes in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and in Hebrews chapter 12 executing the mission which he was given by God with all possible zeal. A man sent out to the harvest would gather as much wheat as possible. Paul wants fruit among the Romans as he had among the Greeks and the Galatians. The term in the other nations is defined by Paul explicitly in Romans chapter 4 and throughout the records of the book of Acts. Therefore, Christians must refrain from defining the term for themselves. We have to let Paul tell us what he means by in the other nations. We certainly will in Romans chapter 4. Verse 14 To both Greeks and barbarians, to both wise and foolish, I am a debtor. So for this cause, then is my eagerness to announce the good message to those of you in Rome. The use of the word rendered as debtor signifies not that he owes the Greeks and barbarians anything, but that he is obligated by his mission in Christ to both Greeks and barbarians for the benefit of Christ. Paul, being an apostle to the uncircumcision, as he explains in Galatians chapter 2, Paul sees the wise and the foolish differently than many of his readers may commonly perceive. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, in an epistle written several years before this one, Paul said, Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you seems to be wise in this world, let him become a fool that he may be wise. In other words, belief in the gospel of Christ was considered pretty foolish back then too by those who had the wisdom of the world, just as it is today, no doubt. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God, For it is written, he takes the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knoweth the thoughts of the wise, that they are vain. Therefore to Paul, the foolish are those who wisely reject worldly wisdom and seek instead the wisdom of God, as he wrote in the last line of his epistle to the Romans. 
that Christians should discover. Christians should discover that Yahweh alone is wise through Yahshua Christ, to whom is honor for the ages. Truly. Verse 16. Truly, I am not ashamed of the good message. Now, the majority text interpolates the words of Christ here. For it is the ability of Yahweh to guarantee preservation to all who have trust, who have trust, who have faith, who trust in God, both to the Judean at the beginning and then to the Greek. The Codex Vaticanus wants the word rendered here at the beginning, which may have more simply been rendered as first, both to the Judean first, than to the Greek. However, the same codex agrees with the other manuscripts where the phrase appears at Romans 2.9 and 2.10. The statement that the gospel had to go to the Judean first and then to the Greek seems to be a reference to Zechariah 12.7 where it says, Yahweh also shall save the tents of Judah first that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem do not magnify themselves against Judah. That prophecy also seems to, well, well, to have a greater fulfillment in the first century than merely the Judeans, and we'll discuss that later, but also seems to await another fulfillment Many of the tribes of the Greeks also descended from the ancient children of Israel, but evidently not from Judah. Ostensibly, many of the Greeks descended from the Dan and the tribe of Dan. For the Dorians, Dor was in Manasseh on the coast of Palestine. That's where the Dorians got their name from. That's not explicit in any of the writings, but it certainly is evident where the poet Homer mentions the Dorians in nowhere in Greece. He puts them only on the island of Crete. That's the only place where Homer knew that they were Dorians. It's ostensible that Crete was therefore a stopping point in the travels of the children of Manasseh. And it can be established in the letters of Paul that the Dorians certainly are Israelites. Ostensibly, the Romans and the Illyrians are also of Judah. We'll talk about that later. I'm certain on several occasions later in this presentation. Yet because Paul was obligated to both Greeks and barbarians, or because he professed that God could save both Judeans and Greeks, does not mean that later men could add as they pleased to the list of those whom Paul intended his ministry. By his comparison of Judean and Greek here, Paul refines for us what he meant in his comparison of Greek and barbarian in verse 14. 
Barbarians were those people familiar to Greeks, but who did not speak Greek. And that would have included the Judeans. So Paul compares Judean and Greeks, but men can add to that list as they please. We have to understand what Paul meant by Greeks and barbarians, not by what we or, or what modern people could imagine that he meant. You, you're not going to squeeze Chinamen and, and Latin American squat monsters into this description because they didn't fit into Paul's world. Rather, Paul himself defined the purpose of his ministry in this epistle to the Romans in Romans chapter 4 as being for those in whom Abraham believed. Doing so, he made it clear that the faith of Abraham was that many nations would come from his loins and that these were the nations to whom he was bringing the gospel. If you are not of those nations then you cannot be of the faith of Abraham because Abraham did not believe in you. Therefore, it is, only, it, it is not only whether one has faith by which one's character should be judged, but what one has faith in, which should be of import to Christians. A dog could have faith that you're going to open the door when he scratches and needs to pee, That doesn't make the dog a Christian. Verse 17. The righteousness of Yahweh is revealed in them from trust in faith, just as it is written, but the just will live by faith. Here, Paul quotes from Habakkuk 2.4. The Septuagint version to which Paul's citations are usually agreeable, says, the just shall live by my faith. The word my is not in the manuscripts here. The phrase from trust in faith is my interpretation. It could say from faith in faith. It could say from faith to faith. Perhaps Paul meant from the faith of those Israelites back there in Habakkuk to the faith of the Israelites of his time in Christ. That wouldn't, I could not consider that interpretation to be invalid. I chose this interpretation from trust in faith because we were told that the children of Israel, that the just would live by faith. Therefore, we should trust in our faith. And that, that reveals the righteousness of Yahweh. One of the underlying themes which we hope to illustrate in this presentation of the epistles of Paul is that when the apostles quoted the Old Testament scripture, they weren't doing it because the lines they quoted were cool or sounded good, or, or were convenient to some point they wanted to make. Rather, it is important for those listening or reading to go back and examine that scripture for the context of the passages being quoted in order to ascertain the truth of what was being said. As Luke relates of Paul's ministry in Beroia, 
or barrier. That they received the word with all readiness of mind, and they didn't stop there and search the scriptures daily whether those things were so. Therefore, where Paul has quoted Habakkuk to the Romans, not just anyone can pick up the epistle, read it, and imagine that Paul was talking about them or about anyone else, for that matter. Rather, where Paul quoted Habakkuk, Christians are obliged to go back and search the scriptures as the Berians did to see what Habakkuk meant by the words which were written. Here, we shall do that very thing. In Habakkuk's prophecy, the Chaldeans have already risen to world hegemony. So Nineveh must already have been destroyed. That's a historical circumstance. The prophet warns of the coming destruction of Jerusalem at the hand of the Chaldeans in what is commonly called the Babylonian invasion of Judah. And therefore, he is writing concerning the remnant of Judah, which was extant between 612 and 586 B.C. We will not read all of Habakkuk's words up to the verse in question, but only enough to see the context and what must be meant by the words which Paul quoted. Because he didn't just quote them because they were cool or because they sounded good. From Habakkuk, chapter 1, the burden which Habakkuk, the prophet, did see. O Yahweh, how long shall I cry, and thou wilt not hear, even cry out under the violence, and thou wilt not save? Why dost thou show me iniquity, and cause me to behold grievance? For spoiling and violence are before me, and there are that raise up strife and contention. Therefore the law, this is an important verse to our point here, Therefore, the law is slacked, and judgment does never go forth. For the wicked does compass about the righteous, therefore wrong judgment proceeds. Habakkuk 1.4 Therefore, we see that in Judah, in the Judah of Habakkuk's time, the people of Yahweh have ceased to uphold his law. Again, from Habakkuk chapter 1, from verse 5. Behold ye among the heathen, or the nations around Israel, and regard and wonder marvelously, for I will work a work in your days which you will not believe, though it be told of you. For lo, I raise up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, which shall march through the breadth of the land to possess the dwelling places that are not theirs. They are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity shall proceed of themselves. The people have forsaken the law of God, and therefore they would be forced to live under the law of the Chaldeans. Again from Habakkuk chapter 1 from verse 12. Art thou not from everlasting, O Yahweh my God, mine Holy One? We shall not die, O Yahweh. Thou hast ordained them for judgment, 
And Almighty God, thou hast established them for correction. The Babylonian captivity and everything which results from it are for the correction of Yahweh's people, Israel, or at least this portion of Judah. But we see that in other prophets of Israel. We see that same message, Amos 3.2, for instance, concerning the Israel taken away by the Assyrians. So the message is the same. Again, from Habakkuk chapter 1, where the prophet depicts the Chaldeans as having exalted themselves, from verse 10. And they shall scoff at the kings, and the princes shall be a scorn unto them, and they shall deride every stronghold, for they shall heap, as dust, heap dust and take it. Then shall his mind change, and he shall pass over and offend, imputing his power unto his God, talking about the Chaldeans. From this we see who it is that is described in Habakkuk 2.4, who is lifted up. Again, from Habakkuk chapter 2, after the prophet inquires of God if there would be any end to the, to the destruction by the Chaldeans, from verse 1, the prophet says, I will stand upon my watch and set me upon the tower, and I will watch to see what he will say to me and what I shall answer when I am reproved. And once more from Habakkuk chapter 2, where the prophet records the answer to be received in verse 2, and Yahweh answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain upon the tables that he may run that reads it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it shall speak and not lie. Though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come. It will not tarry. Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him, meaning the Chaldean, but the just shall live by his faith. The law of God has failed among the people, and the people were going into punishment because they forsook their God. That is a judgment ordained for an appointed time, which would result in the correction of Yahweh's people. And at the end, it shall speak, meaning that his words here would not fail because the just of his people would live by their faith. And the just were those Israelites who would believe their God. That's the whole context of Habakkuk. It has nothing to do with anyone else and only relates to the children of Israel. For the first seven chapters of Paul's epistle to the Romans, Paul sets out to prove this very thing. Paul is telling us the purpose of the balance of his epistle, or at least the great part of it to come, that the law has failed, that the children of Israel would not be judged by the law, but that the just, the righteous among God's people, would seek to uphold the law. That's the whole argument 
the whole argument for the next seven chapters of Romans with a few side journeys. And and that, as Paul says, would make manifest the righteousness of God, which is talked about back there in Habakkuk concerning Israel. Nobody else. From the prayer of Habakkuk in chapter 3 of his prophecy, Thou wentest forth for the salvation of thy people, even for salvation with thine anointed. That's a Hebrew parallelism. Thy people, thine anointed, equals the same entity. Thou woundest the head out of the house of the wicked by discovering the foundation to the neck. The wicked are those bringing all these aliens into the congregation of God. They're still doing it now. They're trying to get you to mean that. They're trying to get you to believe that the the just that live by the faith are anybody who says, "Oh, I believe in Jesus." Well, that's not true. The people of Yahweh are forever the children of Israel who are of the seed of Abraham. Only the just among them are those who would live by faith. Thank you for listening. We will continue our presentation of Paul's epistle to the Romans next week, Yahweh willing. Tomorrow night, Martin Luther on the Jews, part seven. In two weeks, God willing, I'll be arriving home from a short trip to New York to take care of some business and I will be doing call-in programs. I beckon participation. Friend or foe, but foes probably don't stand a chance. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, and good night.